Welcome to The Sober Unicorn. We are a gay-hosted, all-inclusive podcast about sobriety and addiction recovery for the LGBT plus community and all of our allies. I'm your host, Holden, and thank you for joining us today. Hey, 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 it's Holden, and I am an alcoholic. I hope everybody's doing well today. Today, I'm being joined by Stephanie. Hello. Hey, Stephanie, how are you doing today? Peachy. Good. Well, I love that you use that. Nobody's used that on the show so far. So why don't you tell everybody your age, sobriety date, and what your drug of choice was? Rude. I am 33. Uh, My drug of choice is alcohol. Uh, My sobriety date is September 5th, 2020. So I have 18 months today. Hell yeah. Well, congratulations. And I thank you so much for taking the time out and joining us today. Of course, and I thank you for making me drive in traffic for 40 minutes. <laughs> well, I'm so sorry about that. That wasn't my fault. That's uh, things that we cannot control. That's right. <laughs> um, so, Stephanie and I actually met at a gay group here in Fort Worth, and her personality was just, like, super enticing to me, and I was so happy that she actually took the time to sit down and talk about this and share her story with everybody here today. So, I know that your life... Um, listening to you at the group has been vastly different. So why don't you walk us through what your life was um, in your addiction phase versus what your life is like now, 18 months in? Yeah, well, I started drinking a little late. I was a a good Christian girl pretending she was straight up until about the age of 18 or so. Um, And I started drinking in college. And I knew right away that I was drinking a little differently than everyone. We were all drinking to get fucked up. But then I was drinking beyond that. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I I just knew that there were many nights and where Stephanie, oh, she's passed out on that tarp over there, or she's thrown up on her clothes, but it's okay. We've replaced them with plastic bags. Uh, (laughs) things like that and um, so I kind of already knew there was an issue but it was easy to ignore at the time just because I was kind of around it my addiction didn't really get bad until I moved to Texas about 10 years ago I almost immediately got into a relationship and it was my first official gay relationship and so I was kind of navigating that stuff. I had found a new job and my anxiety, which I'd been dealing with for a while but didn't really have the tools to deal with, that's when I started medicating with alcohol. And it started off slowly, just kind of on the weekends, things like that, Um, but it pretty quickly ramped up to kind of reverting back to college days where I was just getting fucked up. And eventually my ex now, of course, (laughs) um, at the time was kind of like, well, this is a problem. She was a heavy drinker, too. So she wasn't like, you know, she wasn't on board for stopping drinking. So I had a lot of times where in the big book in the 12 step program talks about uh, making firm resolutions. So I had a lot of times where I made firm resolutions. Okay, this was embarrassing. You peed the bed again. You, you know, said shit that you don't remember. You got a DWI, whatever the case was, um, where I truly made a firm resolution to not drink again. And I would really mean it in those moments. And it would just be pushed back. And I would have a lot of thoughts like, you know what, you only live once. And if I'm going to live, I'm going to live fucked up and who cares? And um, then as time went on, I was super unhappy in my relationship. I was just unhappy in life. I didn't like my job. I didn't like where my life was. I had no aspirations for the future and I didn't care. 
uh, cut to uh, the pandemic, um, <laughs> which <laughs> saved and hurt many of us. Um, but for me, I started working from home. And so I started drinking from home. I would start drinking in the morning and I would essentially continue uh, until my body rejected it. And I had many times where I would wake up shaking. I just felt like I couldn't function without it. And in the meantime, I had, um, my ex and I had broken up and I had started dating a new woman, not knowing that she was also in recovery. And so I, would drink around her because I don't know. I just, <laughs> I just didn't care. Um, at the time I was just getting on Tinder looking for hookups. <laughs> Got to get what's good. Um, and <laughs> you can laugh. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so I didn't expect, I guess, Tinder to save my life. Um, but it did. After dating for a few months, she kind of brought to my attention, hey, this might be a problem. And I knew it was a problem. Yes, I was drinking around her, but I also had teeny tiny bottles of vodka or fireball or whatever all around my house. I would have them in my purse if I went out. Um, I would pre-drink to pre-drink to actually drink. And I would pass out all the time. <laughs> I would not remember conversations. I would send weird texts. Um, I would attempt to sext <laughs> in a weird <laughs> way that like wasn't cute and everyone's like, no, thank you. Um, and, and so it was just getting really bad. Uh, I got furloughed, I guess is the nice word they used for it from my job, which was fine because I wasn't putting in the work anyway. Uh, so then I didn't even have a work obligation. I was just getting unemployment. And once that happened, I there was no reason to even attempt to feign normalcy. So I, it just got really dark really quickly. I called the suicide, suicide hotline um, in, I think, the summer of that year. And just was like, I don't have a plan. I don't think I really want to kill myself, but I also don't want to live. I'm waking up in the morning feeling sick. I'm leaning over and just throwing up on the side of my bed. I was just unable to function. My life was truly unmanageable. Um, my girlfriend gave me the idea to go to rehab, which I never thought would be a part of my story. It just seemed like that was for other people. I can figure this out on my own. The problem is I'm just not applying myself. And so I went to rehab in September of 2020. That's um, that's my sobriety date. I went on September 4th, but I showed up drunk. <laughs> so my sobriety date is September 5th. And rehab just changed everything for me. It gave me a safe environment to um, detox, <laughs> to come off it. Luckily, even though I had been drinking every day for a long period of time, it wasn't so long that I had to go through DTs or severe shaking or delusions or hallucinations or anything like that, but it was still, you know, not pleasant. Um, I went to a 30-day program and the therapists there were excellent. I was able to feel my feelings again. I was able to sit in discomfort. So in some ways I hated it, but it was just the best experience and what I needed. I had isolated myself so completely in my drinking. My friend and her husband drove me to rehab and they were probably the two friends I had left <laughs> that weren't family um, or, you know, my girlfriend. Um, and yeah, 
rehab. Do so, it. <laughs> so do you think that, as you said, you lost your job, you got furloughed during the pandemic, that, and you called the suicide hotline, do you feel at that moment, because you didn't, essentially you didn't have to work, you were single at that moment, that you had nothing to live for? Yeah, I was just tired. Um, there's a, if any of the other white people that listen to the show are super into euphoria, <laughs> um, I'm super into it. And in the last episode, there was a song that played at the end that I looked up. It's called I'm Tired um, by the artist Labyrinth and Zendaya s- sings on it as well. And it's just a song pleading to God about how you're tired and why can't, and God, why can't you just cut me loose? Um, is part of the lyrics. And that's just what I was feeling. I didn't have an active suicide plan. I had never made an attempt. I just knew that I couldn't keep living like how I was because it wasn't living and I just wanted it to stop. And at that point, I didn't really feel a lot of hope for getting better. And so I just wanted to die. But I'm also a lazy, selfish person and I didn't want to put in any work. That is, I mean, that can, that is completely understandable. I'm lazy as well. So getting out of rehab, I know a lot of people like Charlie that I've had on the show, he would leave rehab and literally drive to the liquor store on the way to the airport to fly back home. So what changed in rehab for you that, that, that didn't happen for you, that you didn't relapse? I think the difference for me was that I had exhausted all my options before rehab. I had done things like having friends give me drink tickets when we went out and I would give them one ticket and they would let me have a drink because they all knew I had a problem, but I'm also a fun drunk up up until a point, so why stop me? And um, I, I had tried just switching to beer. I had tried just switching to vodka because beer is too caloric. I had just tried everything I could. And at the point that I really realized that it was a problem and I would think, okay, I'm definitely going to stop. And I think the longest I got on my own was 10 days. Um, And my girlfriend at the time, she lived in Waco. So I would go visit her. I would be sober for however long I stayed there, whether it was a few days, a week, 10 days. And then I would go back to my own apartment and be like, I shouldn't get anything, but my first stop was always to the gas station. So I think that the main difference for why rehab worked for me the first time around, at least so far, is that I had tried everything else I could think of and I was truly ready to stop. Yeah, I mean, as we know in the 12-step program, it's we, we have to get to a point of desperation in order to kind of stop. I mean, mm-hmm. we kind of have to hit, I mean, everybody's rock bottom is very, very different, but for us, we have to reach that desperation point of nothing else working before we finally find something that does work. And so now that you're out of rehab, um, you're continuing sobriety, how important is it to keep certain people around Um, that don't influence the drinking and that actually influences staying sober? I think it's really important. I think it was easier for me than a lot of people because of the pandemic. Um, So I wasn't being invited out to parties. Um, I wasn't going to bars just to hang out. Um, But in general, I do think that the people you surround yourself with are crucial, especially in early sobriety. Now that I have a little bit of time, again, I have 18 months, I'm not 
old hat at this or anything, but I have gone out with friends where they've had a margarita and I haven't, or I've gone to a bar with my girlfriend and uh, her sister, um, and her sister had a couple drinks and that kind of stuff. Um, is fine, I think, as long as you're not routinely around a culture that promotes drinking. But what I love most about the program that I'm in is that the longer I'm doing it, as long as I'm putting the work in, which to me means things like this, like sharing my story or just trying to help another alcoholic or addict or throwing someone five bucks or whatever the case may be. Um, when I put in the work, I don't feel like drinking. I had to have a conversation with my parents not too long ago. I had flown home for my uh, grandfather's funeral and we were gonna hang out after the funeral as our, our whole extended family and my cousins and some of my aunts and uncles, they like to drink. And I used to go to family parties and just get smashed. I had to be carried out of my cousin's wedding one time. Um, and so my parents were concerned. And so I had to kind of sit them down and explain to them that the reason that I'm not drinking now isn't because I'm always sitting around white knuckling it thinking, oh my God, I hope I'm not around alcohol today. It's because I don't feel like drinking. I could go get drunk anytime I wanted. I don't want to. <laughs> I have a sweet job now where I'm kicking ass. I got a raise this year after having worked at this company for less than a year. Um, I have a townhouse. I have two dogs and a cat that I love. My relationship with my girlfriend is amazing. I have all these things in my life that don't keep me sober necessarily, but when in tandem with everything else that I've been given, um, it definitely helps. Yeah, and I think as sobriety goes on and working your steps in the program, that uh, the obsession of wanting to drink stops. And I mean, I've kind of discussed this last episode on how we can't have the... I'm not a listener. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Um, We can't have the obsession of the body, like the craving, if we don't give in to the... I'm sorry, the allergy of the obsession of the body if we don't give in to the obsession of the mind. Mm-hmm. Like that has to first that has to come first and foremost. And keeping us busy with being of service to other people, especially people in recovery and people outside of recovery is very important as well. That obsession just goes away and you don't even think about drinking anymore. You just think about who else can I help and who else's day can I make better. And that is super important. And I know <clears throat> For many of us in the community, discussion of God or a higher power becomes very, very difficult for mm-hmm. many of us, especially with past prejudice. So you, as you said, you you listened to the song, this song of Zendaya after Euphoria episode. How, and, and you, you felt it very powerful, and she was talking about God. Mm-hmm. So for you, how did, how did you come to terms, or did you have prejudice in the past of higher power, or did you come into the meetings perfectly okay with the thought of it um yeah fuck yes i had a problem with god (laughs) um i am uh from omaha nebraska so i'm raised in the midwest Uh, my parents are evangelical christians which means it's not just good enough to be a christian you gotta tell everyone you gotta convert you gotta get those numbers for jesus um we would have sermons about like how to talk to people on airplanes and shit. Oh my god! <laughs> I know it was nuts. Um, but anyway, so I so I grew up. I knew that I was gay from the time I was probably around ten, um, before I even knew fully what sex was and stuff like that. Um, 
which by the way, my mom told me about sex by taking me on a girl's weekend to a hotel and playing me a, a tape, like a cassette tape. Oh my God. Where Dr. James Dobson, noted homophobe and all around horrible human, told me about what sex is. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> so yes, I did have problems with God. And for a long time that manifested itself in me being a very angry atheist. And I still don't believe in the God of the Bible, but now I'm very much a whatever works for you type of person. So my higher power um, doesn't really have, I have no mental picture of my higher power. I kind of just think of it as the universe. I know in one of the meetings we were at, um, someone was talking about kind of the flow of the universe. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I see it. So when I pray, quote unquote, I'm essentially just unburdening myself, getting thoughts out there, asking for peace or guidance or, you know, something like that. Um, and it helped to have a sponsor who told me that she also doesn't have an idea what her higher power looks like. She kind of knows what it's not, <laughs> um, but it doesn't take anything away from how your higher power can help you. Or at the very least, just letting go and letting God. <laughs> yeah, let go and let God. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> In summation. <laughs> yeah, so I know, I mean, as I've said, just in case you're a first-time listener, that we often use, no matter who our higher or what our higher power is, we use the term God in a loose sense. The fact of it's an easier term to use. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, when I pray, it's just so hard to be like, ooh, the spirits of the universe and Mars and all this. It's like, <laughs> let's say the word God. It's not that big of a deal. And I think... If me specifically, specifically coming into these rooms, if that word God is enough to pull you out of the fucking meetings mm-hmm. and that word God is the reason you can't get sober, then maybe you're not that much of a fucking alcoholic or desperate enough to finally give in. Because I think me, I mean, I it kind of almost did pull me out of the first meeting, but I said, I have to stay. Nothing else has worked. And... Maybe I, I was at my like kind of the last resort. My sponsor says is the last house on the street, mm-hmm. and this is the only option I had other than rehab. And I finally was like, okay, fuck it. I I will just have to say I like God. I faked it <laughs> till I made it. I mean, the first like I would say five six steps, I was lying to my sponsor about <laughs> yes, I believe in God. Um, but it finally came to a turning point where I did, and I had to give up that prejudice. So. <clears throat> Like, I know that God, I mean, makes everybody uncomfortable. So, yeah. and there can be an art in the uncomfortability and even a good outcome. So why don't you share your experience in the art of being uncomfortable? Yes. So when I was, I don't know, 21 or 22, I was in um, a bad car accident. I wasn't driving. It was actually one of the only times in college that we were ever safe and had um, an, a, a DD. And... Uh, We were driving back. It was a small town in Missouri. I was visiting a friend and there was a gravel road and we hit like a pothole on the gravel road. Um, The truck that we were in flipped three times. We landed upside down, had to crawl out that whole thing. We were all fine. Um, But after that was when I had always had some anxiety. But after that incident was when my physical anxiety symptoms really ramped up. And that's when I started once I got back from that 
trip. I had a hard time driving home. I couldn't sit in my college classes. I just had to tell my parents, like, please get me to a doctor. I don't know what's happening, but I physically can't sit still. I feel like I'm going to pass out or whatever. So um, that's when I was formally diagnosed with anxiety and uh, started taking medication that really helped. After a while, it didn't help as much, and that's kind of when my drinking ramped up. So I've always had, and I think pretty much everyone does, but I have a real distaste for feeling uncomfortable, whether it's uncomfortable emotionally, whether it's feeling physical uncom- un- physically uncomfortable, anything like that. And I remember when I was in rehab and some women were sharing their stories and I realized that whenever they got to a part where they would start to cry or a part that was very heavy emotionally, they, I would look down. So I would not meet their gaze. I would not look at them. I would look down. So a couple weeks into rehab, I made a conscious decision to look up. If I ever find myself looking down, if I'm uncomfortable with with the situation, look up and see what's happening. And ever since then, I've tried to kind of take that and apply it to everything. So I still have bad anxiety. I feel it a lot less now than I did when I was drinking all the time. Um, But I still have anxiety and it makes me uncomfortable. My, you know, palms sweaty, knees are weak, (laughs) vomit on my sweater already, uh, and things of that nature. Um, But the art of being uncomfortable is just learning to deal with it and learning to push through. For a while after my accident, and still to this day a little bit, I have uh, driving anxiety. For a long time, I just would not drive on the interstate. If I got anywhere over like 50 miles an hour, I was like, here we go. Um, and, And now I know that if I feel uncomfortable, it's okay. Now I have kind of tools in my tool belt, I guess, for what to do if I... Um, if I feel uncomfortable. So if I'm physically uncomfortable, let's get some water, let's get some gum, let's call someone. Um, if I'm feeling emotionally uncomfortable, what I used to do, what I would, uh, I would drink at those things. Now I know that it's very important to sit in the discomfort, to think about it and to work through it. Sometimes the things are gonna be things that you can just kind of brush off Maybe it's a weird interaction at work or something that's not really going to change your life. You just kind of have to acknowledge it and move on. And for things that are more important, say a disagreement with your partner or something like that, that's something that you might have to sit and think about and then say, hey, this is something we need to talk about. None of this is anything that I would ever have done when I was drinking. I feel uncomfortable, be it physically or emotionally. I'm drinking until I stop until I stop feeling that way. So I know, <clears throat> excuse me, that we all kind of drink. Well, not, I, well, I can't say all, I'll speak for myself. But I drink to avoid those feelings mm-hmm. and the uncomfortability of whether it's of other people, of myself, of my own skin, my own thoughts, whatever it may be. It's like you drink, well, I drink to forget about all of it. So now that I'm sober, the the way I cope and the way I deal with things is vastly, vastly different than ever before. And I know my life has completely altered um, with just how I treat other people, how I manage things, how I manage my own stress, because, bitch, it's a lot. (laughs) And 
So how is, I mean, with now this tool belt, as you said, I mean, I, I, I hate I, that I said that. <laughs> no, I, I love it. I mean, we need to take a trip to the lesbian mall, Home Depot. That's right. Yeah, we all have tool belts, whether you can see them or not. <laughs> so how is your life now after everything? After having this tool belt, after experiencing everything you experienced in your addiction, how is your life now? It is so much better. <laughs> I just... I am so much happier. Um, I was so unhappy for so long. And for a while, I didn't even realize it. I was kind of just like, this is life. Life is hard. And then by the time I did realize it, I was trapped in a cycle that I could not get out of no matter how much I tried. So the fact that I'm now free of that just feels absolutely incredible. My mind is blown by the fact that I don't think about alcohol um, when it used to be a part of my daily life. Um, I love that. <laughs> Sorry about that noise. There if was a sound. That. <laughs> I'm moving in. <laughs> we just met Holden and I'm gay, so. <laughs> that's how it feels sometimes. That's, that, that's my U-Haul. Um, so, no, I'm just so much happier now. Um, my girlfriend and I have now been together for two years. Um, we are raising two beautiful dogs and a cat. <laughs> And I, like I said before, I, I have a good job. I talk to people. I get along with people. If problems arise, I'm able to address them sober. If I'm a dick, it's because I was a dick sober, and now I can apologize sober. And it's just changed everything. It's such a relief. Yeah, I mean, it, it truly is. I, I think we can cope with things so much better now and that these small stressors that used to send us to the bottle we look at those things now we're like bitch why are we why were we ever stressed about right it's it's crazy how things things change and um so of course you're in a relationship you you were in that actually in your addiction Mm -hmm. still so how do you especially you had a partner that was super supportive so how do you decipher from a good relationship and bad relationship now Yeah, um, well, I think a good relationship makes you happy, and I think that that person makes you better and makes you want to be better. Um, And that's a very simplistic answer, but I think that's truthfully it. My last relationship, um, it was one of those relationships that I think a lot of addicts have where if we had been sober, the relationship would have lasted maybe one or two years. Um, but my drinking wrapped, ramped up, as did my lack of will to do anything positive in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that relationship ended up lasting seven years. Um, it was codependent. It went on way too long. Neither of us was happy. Um, and it just wasn't healthy. So I guess the way that I gauge a now healthy relationship is just by seeing how I feel within it. Um, Am I with someone who I can count on? Am I with someone that I I love, that I like to spend time with, that I have fun with, and that makes me want to be better? And then lastly, I also go to therapy (laughs) (laughs) so that he can tell me (laughs) if it's healthy. Well, and I think that's super important, especially to have somebody that, that loved you and cared enough for you and understood. I don't think if she was if she was not in recovery, I think she would have kicked her ass to the curb. Oh yeah, immediately. she would have been like, "Bye, bitch." <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's great that you found somebody that was supportive, and especially because I don't know what her her drug of choice was, but 
somebody that fully understood and was still stood by you and knew that if she recommended rehab to you, that it wasn't coming from a place of just heart. It was coming from a place of love and caring and saying, hey, I know you can get better. Mm-hmm. We just need the tools. And I think after rehab and going through a 12-step, that gave you those tools and allowed you to come out a stronger person, a stronger mindset. Whether you seek outside help or not, such as therapy is beside the point. I think it's just so important that your main basis mm-hmm. is the 12 steps in your day-to-day life. Because your therapist ain't on fucking speed dial <laughs> when when Joe Blow at your fucking job pisses you off. That's true. <laughs> so is there anything that we haven't touched on that you would like to share with everybody? Oh, fuck. Um, I don't really think so. I think... Just I would say if you're if you're on the fence or if you don't know that you're an alcoholic or you think that you might have a problem um, but you're not sure how deep into help you want to get and stuff because I know that admitting to yourself that there's a problem is kind of the biggest step. When I was a little bit reticent, I guess, about wanting to go to rehab, my girlfriend said, you know, try a program, try a 12-step program, worst case scenario, you'll come out a better person because you're still going in, you're getting your house clean, (laughs) you're making amends to people. Um, So worst case scenario, you're going to emerge feeling freer. So I would say if there's anyone that's on the fence about what to do, just find a meeting in your area. Find someone that you know who's had success in sobriety and just ask some questions. Yeah, and the great thing about compared to a rehab or a meeting, the fact of if you walk into an AA meeting or an NACA, whatever it may be, and you don't like it, mm-hmm. it's only a fucking hour long. Yep. Suffer through that shit. And when you leave, uh, for one, the seed is planted. It mm-hmm. gives you something to think about. Um, but two, you don't have to go back. You choose to go back. And I think like rehab, depending on whether it's inpatient, outpatient, like, sometimes you're locked there, you're forced to be there, it's court-ordered. Mm-hmm. So people's feelings, well, there are a lot, lot different from being in an AA room because walking those doors takes some freaking balls. And whether you're man or woman, you got some balls to be able to walk into mm-hmm. that room. And that's the. I, I think the first step is just swallowing your pride enough to seek out a meeting, park, walk in, and just introduce yourself to anybody. Because all these rooms are full of friendly people and that kind of leads to my next question is what would you tell the person in the lgbtq community qia plus community (laughs) that is in fear of coming into a 12-step program because of fear of judgment because of fear of judgment due to their sexuality yes oh well i would say um i mean holden you and i met and in a gay group so and i know that there's stuff like that all over the country and we're in texas (laughs) um so i would say seek out uh maybe a gay positive group or something like that otherwise honestly just try groups groups aren't always one size fits all some of them may have more old timers some may have more young people some may have a good mix so if you go to a group and you're sensing any sort of judgment don't stay at that group shop around (laughs) find a group that fits you yeah and i mean i will tell you there's kind of within my home group within a five mile radius there's probably i think three other groups 
and I know in my home group, it's a normal, it's not a gay group. Mm -hmm. And we have, of course, gay people, trans people, and others. So it's like we have old, young, gay, trans, and we all are here for one reason, and that is just to help each other through our addiction and become a recovered alcoholic. So if anybody resonates with your story and wants to reach out to you, how can they find you? Oh, uh, they can find me on Instagram. I believe it's just, (laughs) I think it's Stephanie Nebraska Wheeler. (laughs) The only thing that anyone knows about me, like since I moved here, is that I used to live in Nebraska. People find that interesting for some reason. Um, I think Instagram is really all I have. We're on Facebook, Stephanie Wheeler. Okay, well, I don't have, um, no, I do have Instagram. Duh. (laughs) Oh my God. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. Hit that follow button to be notified about new episodes every week. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on Instagram at The Sober Unicorn Podcast or on our website at thesoberunicornpodcast.com. There you will find our episodes as well as our very own sober-owned shop featuring products from small businesses that are sober-owned. And remember, everyone, don't be normal, be a unicorn, but better yet, be a sober unicorn. Sober Unicorn.